you haven't already done so, let me encourage you to turn the passage that was read just a few moments ago in your hearing in the book of Exodus in the fifth chapter. Thankful for the opportunity to be here. As was mentioned just a moment ago, I've been here multiple times through the years. Since Tony's been here, Tony and I have known each other for 37 or 38 years. It means we met when we were two, I guess, because I'm only 40. All right, just want to make sure you're awake. I'm just a tad past that. Not much, though. Here's what I want to talk about tonight and answer to the question that was asked by Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. There are several issues that I would like to address in this order. Understanding, one, God is the creator. Number two, God is the revealer. Number three, God is the provider. Number four, God is a redeemer. Number five, the singular existence of the holy God under consideration here. And then the last thing that will really bring it all together is how all of those first five things tie together to make God worthy of the worship that the children of Israel were expected to give. So that's what we're going to do. Let's set the stage for what we're looking at. If you're going to study the book of Exodus, let me just say you should never read Exodus by itself. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are intended to be read as a singular body of literature. You look in the book of Luke in the 24th chapter. Jesus came upon two men walking along the road. I often refer to them as the Emmaus walkers. You know the account. They're walking along the road and Jesus joins in on the conversation. They did not recognize Jesus. And he hears them talking. He says, what is it that you're talking about? And they said, are you a stranger? Do you not know what's going on in the city of Jerusalem just recently? And Jesus said, well, what? What's going on? And they start talking about the Christ, again, not knowing that they are in the presence of the Christ. They said, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, man mighty in word and deed, crucified at the hands of the Romans, and we've heard that he's alive again. We hope he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. But they had some misgivings, some misunderstandings properly, I should say, because they didn't understand that Jesus was going to die, be buried, and rise again according to the Scriptures. That's what the nutshell of the Gospel is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And here's what Jesus did. He spoke to them, and it says, from the law and from the prophets and from the writings... He revealed those teachings collectively from those three parts of the Hebrew Scriptures concerning himself. And then later in the same chapter, chapter 24, verse 44, he did the exact same thing all over again. He spoke about what the law said concerning himself. He spoke about what the prophet said concerning himself. He spoke about what the writings or the wisdom literature said concerning himself. Now, the Hebrews have an acronym that they use to keep all three of those classifications of writings in mind. It's called the Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H. And the only letters that really stand for something are the letters T, N, and K. The T stands for Torah, or Torah, which is law or instruction. Guess what it is? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
The N stood for Nebaim, which is the Hebrew word for prophets. And it would refer to all those books that we call prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Hosea through Malachi. But it would also include some of the writings that we refer to as history. And then finally, the last letter, K, would refer to Ketubim, which is the writings, which is the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and so forth. Now, the reason why I bring that out is, in the context of his upbraiding these men and showing them gently about what the Scripture said concerning himself, Jesus referred to the body of Moses' writings as if they were one singular unit. He did it once to the Emmaus Roadwalkers. He did it twice to the Apostles, both within the same chapter. And what's my point? If Jesus referred to the writings of Moses in such a way that he referred to them as a singular body, a singular entity, then maybe we should do the same thing. Why do I say that? Drop back just a few pages from where you are in your reading and look in the book of Exodus in the very first chapter in the first verse. I'm using the New King James rendering. You may have a slightly different rendering. But in Hebrew, the book of Exodus starts with what's called a vav consecutive. The word consecutive means something in order something in sequence. And the word vav simply means and. Or, as it's very frequently translated as now. What do you mean, and or now? The intention is exactly where Genesis leaves off, Exodus starts. This is the continuing part of the story. And so Genesis should never be read by itself, nor should Exodus be read by itself, but as Jesus taught the Emmaus Roadwalkers and then later the Apostles, God wants us to understand the writings of Moses in one fell swoop, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so in the context of my lesson tonight, I'm going to assume that we have taken the time at some point in the past and we've read all five of those books together to see how they fit together as a unit. They are chapters within a five-book theme, so to speak. Now, I know that the books are uh, uh, split up into chapters of their own accord, 50 in Genesis and 40 in Exodus and so forth, but that's what we have done. Human beings have divided them into chapters. But what I want us to understand is that the Jews would have understood that as one large book. And that's going to make a lot more sense as we go forward when we talk about what Jesus says concerning, excuse me, what Moses says concerning God. Now here's what's going on. The children of Israel in captivity, more about that in a moment. God's going to bring them out of captivity. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, God remembers the promise that he made to the fathers. Genesis chapter 12, to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Becomes a national promise. Jacob became Israel, Israel became a nation, and now Israel's a nation. Only Israel's a nation without a territory. They have a lot of people. They have a standing army, as we see, of 603,550, and perhaps a total population of two to three, maybe four million people. But they are slaves in another nation. And God prophesied this. After he made the first promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, a few chapters later, some time had elapsed. And in the context of the first promise, God told Abraham, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you blessings, 
And the one that really latched on with Abraham was, I'm going to give you seed, children. At the time that that promise was made, Abraham was 75 years old. He had no children. And his wife, Sarah, was barren. And it's not for another 25 years until she actually gives birth. By this time, Abraham's 100 years old. And so sometime it had lapsed since that promise was given, and God talks to Abraham, Abraham talks to God, and he asks this question, I have this man, Eleazar, a servant, a steward in my household. He's from Damascus. Is he the one who's going to inherit all of these things? Is he going to be the seed through which these things are going to come to pass? And God said, no. It's actually going to be your physical offspring, your own progeny. It's going to be your physical child. And he says, I'll prove it to you. And he begins to talk about not only this child, but the nation that's going to develop from this child. He says, this nation, ultimately going past the time of Israel, to the point where they're in the land of Egypt, is going to go into a land that's not theirs, Egypt, and I'm going to bring them out with a mighty hand to this place. And so the book of Exodus was prophesied a long time before the book of Exodus actually takes place, roughly 450 to 500 years. And so when we get to the time of what we're reading now in Exodus chapter 5, hundreds of years had elapsed since the promise was initially given to Abraham and since the fulfillment of that promise to Isaac. Multiple generations of Jews had begun to populate the planet. Now they're in slavery, providentially put into the land of Egypt in order for God to show Abraham how this promise was going to be fulfilled. And God remembered the promise, Genesis chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, and he's going to deliver them. And so he uses a man by the name of Moses, whose name in part means drawn out, because he's drawn out of the water. And he's going to use this man who was drawn out of the water to draw his people out of the land of Egypt. And so he sends Moses and his brother Aaron to Mr. Pharaoh and says, in effect, let my people go. And in this context, he says, God says, not only let my people go, but let them go into the wilderness that they might have a feast. And here's the setup for the key question that we're going to answer. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? That I shall obey, should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Now these messages that we're about to bring, he's going to learn. And he's going to learn the hard way. That God is a creator, that God is a revealer, that God is a provider, that God is a redeemer, that God is singular, and therefore the only deity that is worthy of worship. He did not believe that, but he's going to learn that. Let's start with the concept of God as creator. Unique among the gods in the pantheon of pagan nations, God is distinct from the physical world. The Bible starts with this very simple declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that stands at odds in contrast to what most people believe. Most people in pagan religions believe that their gods were part of the created universe. That they were just bigger parts 
and they were responsible for different parts of that created universe. But they never imagined nor assumed that their gods were transcendent of that created universe, nor did they ever imagine that they were responsible for its existence. And so the very first verse of the Bible says something unique about God in comparison and contrast to the gods of the peoples that the children of Israel are going to encounter. Now, you may know this already, but let me just briefly mention this to make a point. When Pharaoh refuses initially to let God's people go, God, through Moses and through Aaron, begins a series of plagues, a series of miraculous demonstrations of God's nature and existence. And each one of those is attached and targeting a specific Egyptian god and or gods. They worshipped the water. They worshipped the sun. They worshipped the crops. They had a god for all of these different things. They did not have one singular god. They had a pantheon, a plethora, an abundance of multiple little gods, each of whom had their own territory. Now, during the days of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is rebuking the children of Israel and calling attention to the fact that they weren't worshiping the one true God anymore. And he says, you worship about as many gods as there are cities. You might say, oh, surely that's overstatement. No. There were local gods for almost every city. When Paul went to the city of Athens, things had progressed to the point when he came there, there were gods or images to gods, little g with an S on the end, everywhere. The pundits of the day in Athenian society said it was easier to run into a god in the city of Athens than a human being. Why? Because they made gods out of everything. Well, the beginning of that goes all the way back to this time when they're worshiping gods galore. And so God, the singular God, Jehovah God, the God that's brought out in the beginning, is creator and responsible for all things. Now, I'm not going to take the time to do it sufficiently, but if you start right there in Genesis chapter 1, and you go to the very end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 21, it is a consistently repeated thing that God has emphasized as the role of creator almost first in order to get people's attention. And it's done that way in the very beginning of the Bible so that when you get into the New Testament, that's the exact same line of thinking that the New Testament writers employ with reference to God's Son, the Christ. How's he identified in the beginning of John? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, then what? There wasn't anything made that was made except that it was made by the Word. What do you mean? Christ is the Creator. In Ephesians chapter 1, He's involved in creation. And that's why He's head over all things and given to be head over the church. In Colossians chapter 1, He is the Creator of all things and by Him all things hold together. That's about the Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and following, here's how God used to speak to the fathers, the prophets in the past. How he spoke to them by means of the prophets, but now in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, and it says, by whom he's created all things. And so the notion of God as creator is not just the setup for the, the singular existence of God in the Old Testament, it becomes a pattern 
to establish the connection that Christ has to God in the New Testament. And so there's a logical reason why we're starting with God as Creator. That's the way the Bible starts. And that's the way the God of the Bible is consistently upheld. God is responsible for all things. In the interim, between the first chapter and the last chapter, 1,189 chapters apart, you'll see multiple references to God as Creator. I'll just bring out just one. Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, a man was healed by Paul's hand. The people saw that. Barnabas was with him. They're about to fall down and worship him as if they were little g gods. He said, no, 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 don't do that. The reason why we were able to do this, heal this man, is because of the power of the singular God of the universe by whom all things were made and in whom all things consist. And so constantly, in order to get the attention of people who didn't believe in God, biblical writers and biblical preachers would start right there. God is Creator. And in order to emphasize the deity of Christ, they would start right there. Christ is also Creator and equal with God. That's point number one. Pharaoh, you need to understand that the God we're talking about is Creator. Point number two. The God we're talking about is a revealer. God is a revealer. Now, what do we mean when we say that? There's a passage in the book of Amos, chapter 3, in verse 7. That's incredible. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing except He reveals His secrets to His servants, the prophets. The lion is roar, God. Who can but prophesy? What that passage says in part is, is, is a theme that's consistent throughout the entire Bible. When God knows something, that's for the benefit of other people, and everything he knows is for the benefit of others. He cannot restrain himself. He has to tell people good news. Now, this existed even before the creation. In the love that was demonstrated between Father, Son, and Spirit, John 17, 23, and 24, but it's continued within the framework of time and space. God is a revealer. The very beginning of the book of Genesis not only tells us that God creates, but it's a, it's a revelation to us of that creation account. God wants to be known. And when God does not reveal himself, you know something's wrong. Prophets talked about a famine of God's word that was going to come at different places, at different points in time. It says when there is no vision, the people perish, and that has nothing to do with foresight. It means when there is an absence of God's revelatory message, then people are going to perish. And you don't ever want to have that. So God always wants to reveal himself. Now what's the significance of this as it relates to one, God is creator, and then on top of that, God is a revealer. The gods of the Egyptians could not create. The gods of the Egyptians could not reveal. If you go down to the book of Isaiah, starting about 40, and reading through the end of the book of Isaiah through the 66th chapter, you're going to see a consistent message. And the consistency of the message is this, to whom will you liken me? To what will you compare me? God constantly says, there's nothing else out there like me. And he says, if you want your gods, little g, plural s, to move, guess who has to move them? You do. If you go and talk to them, they cannot hear you. You know about the famous contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? You remember how 
uh, Elijah kind of poked him a little bit. Hey, you're offering these sacrifices to your gods. Uh, maybe they're on lunch break. Maybe they're taking a break. Maybe they've gone away on a trip. Maybe they can't hear you. So they holler and scream that much more. And they got involved in all sorts of fantastic machinations and they were jumping back and forth and they were cutting themselves and their gods never responded. Why? They weren't real. And because they weren't real, they could not hear, they could not see, they could not do. And perhaps one of the most telling condemnations of idol worship, Isaiah says you cut down a tree and you take a portion of that tree that you cut down and you use it to heat your house. And you take a portion of that tree that you cut down and you use it to cook your dinner. And the rest of the exact same tree, you worship as if it were a god. And the point that's made in that context is, maybe you should have used that part to cook your dinner or heat your house. <laughs> What's the point? It's futile. It's worthless. You see, God compared to the gods of Egypt is unique because God is a creator. Because God's a revealer. All the false gods then and since then and now cannot create. All the false gods then, since then, and now cannot reveal anything. God demonstrates by means of unique hallmarks what He is like. One of them is that He creates, and the other one is that He always tells us what's on His mind for our benefit. So it's brought out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and following. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered in the minds of men the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. And it talks about the process of revelation that comes from God through the Spirit, through Spirit-enabled workers, so that ultimately at the end of that passage in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. You have no minds of little g, plural s, gods, by means of any revelation. The claims to inspiration by all sorts of pagan deities are few and far between, and none of them literally claim to be from a God who created all things. And so God is unique because He's creator. God is unique because He's revealer. But here's something else that's also important in this context. God is going to be introduced to Mr. Pharaoh and to the nation of Egypt. Not only as a creator, not only as a revealer, but as a provider to his people's needs. I don't know if you saw this already, but in the context of the book of Genesis, that's the order in which God's introduced. First, he's creating. The whole context of it is a revelation. And one of the first things you see in the context of that is God's provisions. At the end of one day, it was good. At the end of the next day, it was good. It was good. It was good. On the last of the days of creation, before we rested on the seventh day, it was very good. What did God put there? everything that man needed, everything that man needed physically and spiritually, everything was there. Why? Because God is a provider. And the concept of God's providence is awesome. The word literally in Latin means to see before. Pro meaning before, video meaning sight. And so God sees things before. But it also means having seen those before to provide for those needs, knowing that they're going to be met. The Bible says God knows what you need before you ask. That's his provision. But God's ready to give you those things to literally provide for them. But here's something else that's interesting. In God's foresight and in God's planning to meet those needs, God reveals himself by means of his providence. And that's what he's going to demonstrate in this account. God demonstrated his willingness to provide for Adam 
and for Eve before sin, but even after sin. There's a continuation of provisions for them. That there's a means by which they could access God, even though they were removed from the Garden of Eden and had no longer physical access to the Tree of Life. Because God did not want them to live forever in a world tainted by sin. Now, the most unique aspect of God's providence is going to be demonstrated in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the story of redemption on a large scale, unlike anything that's ever been done. How can you take a nation of three to five million people and move them from outside of the physical premises of one nation across the Sinai and take them to another nation and nobody know about it? You can't do that. There's no Google Maps then. There's no texting. There's no instant messaging. There's no photographic evidence. It's all word of mouth. God's going to move five million people, roughly, across, out of the land of Egypt, across the sea, across the Sinai, and into the land of Canaan, and everybody's going to know about it. And it's by design. In the context of the book of Exodus, God, through Moses, says, I'm going to show you Pharaoh who I am. I'm going to show you Egypt who I am. I'm going to show you Moses and Aaron who I am. I'm going to show you Israel who I am. And then the last step, I'm going to show you the nations who I am. Remember what happened when the spies went into the land to check it out before Joshua got there? And they encountered a woman by the name of Rahab. Do you remember what Rahab knew before they ever met her? We know who you are. We know where you've come from. We know about your God. We know how your God delivered you from the Egyptians. We know how your God brought you through the Sinai. We know how your God calls you to the V, Og and Sihon on the other side. And we know you've come here to do the same thing. You don't move millions of people except people around the world know about it. And hundreds of years later, God calls attention to his provisions for the nation of Israel as proof that he is, that he's a creator, and that he is a provider, and that he's a revealer. You read in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, multiple times God says, I did this for your sake, and I did this for the world. And so the concept of God's provisions for his people are going to be demonstrated in a unique way. The children of Israel are going to be beneficiaries of that providential care. And the Egyptians are going to see it. They're going to see when God promises a miracle and a plague through the nation of Egypt that's going to come upon them and says, here's what's going to happen to all your livestock. When the hail comes and the rain comes, they're in the fields, they're going to die. And the children of Israel, knowing that, guess what they did? They moved their livestock to safety. And over a period of time, the Egyptians caught on. You know everything that guy says? It comes to happen. We may not know who God is, but it's happened once, it's happened again, Ten times it happens. And they caught on. Their God, their God, not only is a creator, their God's not only a revealer, but he's taking care of them. We want to be on their side. And there's one of the promises made by God to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. And bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you. They wanted to be blessed. And so the children of Israel went out with great provisions because they saw God providing for His people. So first point, God's a creator. 
Second point, God's a revealer. Third point, God's a provider. And all of these things apply to the God of Israel and not to any of the gods of the Egyptians nor anybody else's gods. Connected with the concept of provisions is God is demonstrated to be a redeemer, a savior. The whole purpose of Exodus is God saving His people. And it becomes a pattern. It becomes a motif. It becomes a paradigm that's referred to over and over throughout the biblical text. And God says, in effect, I saved you from Egypt. I can save you from anything. In the context of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what does He remind them? Let me bring to you bring to you uh, to mind some of the things that happened to Moses and the children of Israel. How that Moses and the children of Israel crossed through the sea as if they crossed on dry land. And how they were baptized in the water and the sea. What's the point of that? There's a spiritual impact of that physical occurrence. And it is a salvation occurrence physically as preparatory to even greater salvation occurrence spiritually that happens in the person of the Christ. And that's why Moses is told in Deuteronomy, there's going to come a prophet. Just like you, from among you, the children of Israel, that's going to be greater than you are. And who is that? Of course, the Christ. Cited by Peter in Acts chapter 3, cited by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And so all of these things are an incredible foreshadow, a type of something even more incredible to come. And so the Exodus is a story of redemption in which Israel is removed from the iron furnace that's Egypt. And the greater picture is how we are removed from the clutches of sin. God is a creator. God is a revealer. God is a provider. And God is a savior. Now the fifth point before we get to the real big one that's brought out in this context is that God is singular in His existence. There's only one. There's only one. Now, when Pharaoh responded as he did, he didn't say, I don't know anything about any kind of God anywhere. Because he would have been lying. He knew about all kinds of gods. He knew about all the gods of the other nations. He knew about all the gods of the Egyptian nation. Remind you that, that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household and learned according to all the ways of the Egyptians. He knew that stuff too. And so when he says what he says concerning the God, he says, I don't respect him. It's not that he'd never heard of the idea or the concept. The Jews had been living in the land of Egypt for a long time. They lived in the land of Goshen, a distinct place, and the Egyptians knew that their God was different. They always knew that. And so he didn't respect him. And that's what he needed to develop, an understanding of respect. Fast forward. Time of Isaiah. During the time when Hezekiah was king. And Sennacherib, his armies come against the city of Jerusalem. He sends his counselors, his, his emissaries, and they're threatening the walls of the city. And Rabshakeh comes and he begins to speak in the language of the people. And they say, don't do that, you're scaring everybody. And he says something very unique. He says, do you think your God's any different than all the other gods of all the nations that we have defeated? He was mocking the concept of Israel's God, saying, 
It's just another little g, plural s God like all the other gods. There's no difference. God shows a difference during the days of Hezekiah. And God's going to do the exact same thing now. He's going to show that He is different. There is no other God like me. I want you to do me something. Or do me a favor if you would. I want you to show, show how key this is. Turn with me to the book of Mark. And we're going to come back and wrap up our lesson in just a moment. In the book of Mark in chapter 12, Jesus is going to be asked the question. And this question has been asked multiple times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the way that Jesus approaches it here is unlike anything else he does in the rest of the gospel accounts. And the reason why is because it's so incredibly foundational and fundamental. Well, what does he do? What are we talking about? Well, let's just read a little bit. One of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning, and this is just about uh, immediately after the uh, encounter with the Sadducees who challenged the resurrection, Jesus put them in their place by means of reasoning. When Jesus heard this, perceiving he, Christ, had answered them well because they didn't know what to say after that, he taught them that the resurrection was true without literally stating it by means of the logical premises he presented. This man comes and he asks him, what's the first commandment of all? Now before you read any further, but you can if you want to, let me just tell you. In other occasions, Jesus doesn't do what he's about to do. He would cite the two great commandments, love of God, love of neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's Luke's rendering. And love your neighbor as yourself. But before he says those two, Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, he says, on these hang all the law and the prophets. Before he even cites those, he cites something even more fundamental than those two great commandments. How could anything be more fundamental than that? Watch what Jesus says. Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now I challenge you to read in the listing of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 and find that listed among those Ten Commandments. It's not there. Well, Jesus just called it a commandment. And He said it's, it's the first of all the commandments. It's more important than all the other commandments. It's first from the standpoint of being foremost more important than all the others. Why does Jesus say that? Because it's true. But here's another reason why he says it. Keep your finger there, if you would, for comparative sake, and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were understood to be a single body of writing by Jesus as he spoke to the Emmaus walkers, as he spoke to the apostles later. And turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. You're looking at chapter 6. And just start reading a little bit. Chapter 6. This is the re-giving of the law before the children of Israel go into the land of Canaan. A new generation, 40 years later. The first generation had died. 603,550 men that I mentioned before, all of them but two died. Only two that lived, Joshua and Caleb, because everybody else didn't believe not talking about the old men, not talking about the priests, not talking about the wilderness women or children, not talking about anybody may have been lame or infirm, it's talking about the fighting men. That generation was gone. And so the law is re-given to a new generation. That's why it's called Deuteronomo, second giving of the law to a new generation of people. Well, watch what he says here. This is the commandment, verse 1 of chapter 6. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. They're just about to go over the Jordan. 
under the leadership of Joshua, Moses' successor. Moses doesn't get to go in, but he gets to prep them for it. He says, this is why I'm telling you these things. You're about to go into the land. Verse 2, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all the statutes and commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, and all the days of your life, uh, and that all your days may be prolonged. Now watch what he says going a little bit further. Verse 3, therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as I mean, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Here's the verse. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then after that he says, you shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Notice, before he said that first great commandment, the one that Jesus referred to as the foremost commandment was the one that says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That doesn't mean he's one among many. It means he's one in all. Doesn't mean you can pick and choose whatever God you want, and he happens to be one of the choices. It means there is no other choice from God's perspective but his, because everything else is pretend and make believe. Now Jesus starts with that premise in Mark chapter 12, verses 27 and following, for good reason. God wanted Israel to realize he wasn't just a God like all the gods of the nations. wasn't a God just like all the gods of the Egyptians. He was the God. And the God demands specificity as unique and as exclusive and as distinct as he is. And it needs to be reflected in his people. Let me simply say, that has never, ever changed. When we stop being the unique, distinctive, exclusive people that reflects the nature of a unique, distinctive, exclusive God, then we are no longer His. And that can happen. Even the churches that were once strong, you've left your first love. John writes through inspiration, guided by means of the angel and the spirit, as God reveals these things to the Christ in the inspired letters in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 and following. I'll come and remove your candlestick. You won't be mine anymore. Why? You're not what you used to be. That can happen. And it happened to Israel as a nation. And so these five issues, God is a creator, God is a revealer, God is a provider, God is a redeemer or savior, and the uniqueness of God, one God, all combined together to answer this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice to let Israel go? All of those things combined demonstrate and demand that God is worthy of worship as God dictates that worship to be carried out. Mr. Pharaoh didn't understand that. Some of the children of Israel may not have understood it. When Moses first went to Pharaoh, they said, hey, you're causing grief for us. Our workload's increased. We're being persecuted more. People are being hurt. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. God wanted them to understand. Not just Moses. Not just Aaron. Not just Pharaoh. Not just Egypt and the nations. He wanted Israel to understand, this is who I am. And I need to be worshipped in this way. You know, we, and I'm using we very broadly, are the mindset that if I like God and God likes me, He ought to accept whatever I offer up to worship, no questions asked. Because I love God so much. Well, Okay, 
Uzzah wanted to do something that he thought was beneficial to an item that was very, very important in God's scheme of things, and he reached out and touched the ark, and he died. And David saw that and didn't know what to think about it. He stopped, and the ark went to the house of Minadab for three months until they figured out that it wasn't moved after the due order. God doesn't just want to be worshipped. He wants to be worshipped according to the dictates that he set forth. And his commandments are not grievous. Now, these principles that we are talking about in the context of the book of Exodus are everywhere in Scripture. And they apply with equal force to all of us today. Let's just briefly recap some of them that we've already noticed. Christ is also creator. Christ is also revealer. Christ is also provider. Christ is also savior. Christ is also singular. And Christ also must be worshipped in a context in which He has set forth, just as all those things apply to the Father, they apply with equal force to the Son. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you a unique, distinctive, exclusive Christian? See, I don't like being distinct. It calls attention to myself. Sometimes that's called for. God called attention to Himself. There's a passage, I'm sure you're familiar with it, we'll close with this. In the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15, you know what it is even before I cite it. Joshua says to the children of Israel, Choose this day whom you will serve. That is, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You may also know that the immediate response of the children of Israel was, We will serve the Lord. But I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but immediately after saying that's exactly what they're going to do, Joshua cautions the people. And he says, do you know what that means to choose to serve the Lord? Yes, we will serve the Lord. And he asks them again, do you know what that means? That means if you choose to serve the Lord, you can no longer serve idols as Abraham's ancestors did on the other side. Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 and following. What he meant was choosing God meant choosing God and excluding everything else. It's a decision. Now, the etymology of this word that I'm going to share with you has nothing to do with the original etymologically, but the concept is there. When you make an incision, you cut into something. When you make a decision, you cut something off. And when you decide, the thing that you decide is cut off from everything else that you could have chosen. When you decide to marry that woman or that man, you better not have in mind that you can also be married or have some other relationship with another woman or another man. To decide, in this sense, means to choose one and to choose one only. Now what's interesting is the Hebrew term that's rendered where he says choose is used of God in other places where it talks about God's choices. God says, I chose to be worshipped in this place, in Jerusalem and in no other. And the word bakar that's rendered there means to choose and to choose exclusively. I want to be a Christian, but you know, it sure is a lot of fun living the life of a non-Christian. What do you choose? Can I have a little bit of both? Can't make up your mind between chocolate and vanilla, can you? Give me a scoop of both. We're not talking about choosing ice cream. We're talking about choosing God and leaving off everything else that's not God. 
You want to look like God and leave off everything else that doesn't look like God. This is part of the message that Mr. Moses and Mr. Aaron wanted to get across to Mr. Pharaoh and all the nations of the world. God is worthy of worship. God is worthy of worship singularly because of His single existence. Because of who He is as a creator, as a revealer, as a provider, as a redeemer. And I'm going to prove it to you. And the rest of Exodus does just that. And it's a precursor of the same message told on a grander scale, the means of the Christ who went to the cross, who provides all of these same things in response or in fulfillment of what these anticipate. If you're not a Christian, you need to be this kind of Christian who is that exclusively dedicated. If you are a Christian, you need to make sure that you are faithful in all things. In order to become a Christian, you have to have faith in God, Hebrews 11, 6, Christ, John chapter 8, verse 24, in the integrity and the authority of the Scriptures, John 17, verse 17. And then you have to be willing to submit yourself to God, and you submit yourself to God by means of following the words that God gave. It means you have to be obedient. Let me get you to think of something very quickly. Jesus did just that. John 15, verses 8 and 9, he spoke to the disciples. And he says, if you want to remain in my love, you will keep my commandments. Okay, we got that. But then the kicker is what he says immediately after that. Just as I have obeyed the Father's commands and abide in his love. Say that again. You mean there's a connection between the apostles following Jesus' command and abiding in his love? And that somehow relates to Jesus obeying the Father's command and abiding in His love. You mean if Jesus didn't obey the Father's commands, He couldn't be loved in the same way? That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus never says, I've done it all, you don't do anything. That's not anywhere in the Bible. And Jesus says, here's what I've done. You do the same thing. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. So if you're not a child of God, we encourage you to become one by being immersed in the Christ, the remission of your sins, understanding all these things about the nature of God that we talked about this evening that also apply to Christ. And if you are a child of God already, read through these passages and understand that the principles and the practices that were set forth in pattern then have just as strong of application today as they did then in a stronger, more real, more significant way a means of the sacrifice of Christ. Whatever your needs might be, let them be known while we stand and while we sing.